Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. All right, welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast, episode number seven. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of shows. Um, if you want to come and see me play all of my new music, I'm doing Atlanta on the 26th of October. I am doing Bangalore on the 8th or 9th of November and Delhi, I think, on one of those days. I'm doing some India stuff. 1st of November or maybe the 2nd of November, <laughs> I'm doing a Taipei, Taiwan. Third and fourth of November is your oh, workshop in Taipei. There we go. There we go. Um, and then I'm doing Melbourne, Australia on the 15th of November. I am doing Bohemian Beat Freaks on the 23rd of November, which is in up near Brisbane in Australia. Sydney on the 30th of November. Um, then in December, I've got San Francisco on the 12th of December. 13th of December is Nevada City. 14th of December is Los Angeles. 18th of December is... Denver, Colorado. 19th of December is Santa Fe, New Mexico. 20th of December is not a thing. 21st of December <laughs> is Columbus, Ohio. 11th of January is Philadelphia. For all tickets and more information, go to mrbillstunes.com forward slash tour. Right. That is if I've added in all the dates to your website. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, today I'm speaking with Anand Harsh, who is actually my manager. And I thought this would be an interesting conversation because a lot of people are constantly asking me about like management stuff and just like, I, I, I think probably I get like two messages a week of people just being like, when do I, when should I get a manager or like, what does a manager do or, you know, all of that kind of stuff or people talking about, um, I get so many messages of people being like, how do I get booked? You know, and I'm like, oh, cool. Well, let me well check I out. see a lot of those messages that come to you. So I know that you're being inundated with this stuff and you did this to yourself because you told people how to make the music, so now they're assuming they can come to you and get an answer as to how to take other aspects of their career to the next level. Right, yeah, I kind of like demystified a bunch of shit in music, so people are now kind of like, well, how do I do all these other things that have mystery around them? <laughs> yeah, you have to define some sort of like bright line area around your expertise and say, I can help you with this, I can't help you with this, unless you... I mean, honestly, maybe it would make sense for you to do a tutorial. It's like, I'm going to walk away from Ableton for this tutorial. I'm going to tell you about booking a show, the steps to that, finding an agent, finding a manager. Maybe that would be an interesting twist to your tutorial series. Well, I, I think that's what this podcast can be. You know, like... Oh, I, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I definitely course. think it's like just a... Because I feel like the tutorials is like always good to to just have those be like you know, related to how to do tricks in Ableton, like how to do specific little weird things that I've found, like little hacks and stuff. Um, and then I think live streaming is just a good look into, you know, me, how I'm, how I am in the studio, like on an actual day to day basis. And then, you know, the big premium content on my website is good for showing people like breaking down my whole process in a larger detail. But I think the podcast is really good for everything else. It's good for like breaking down just like all the extra exterior thoughts that you might have in the music industry and talking to other artists about their experience and then obviously talking to people like you, like managers and stuff like that. I think really the the greatest thing that this podcast could do is really make 
a very solitary profession feel not so lonely. All these people have their laptops in an airport with their Starbucks cup of coffee. They have three, four gigs that week and they're by themselves. And if they've got a tour manager, they've already talked about everything they can talk about. They've, they've exhausted all lists of possible things and it, it feels very lonely and you feel like you're going through it by yourself without a roadmap or anything. And, and, the extracurricular stuff from actually making the music, mixing the music, suddenly there's this community of people that are sharing their frustrations, their fears. I guess that's what EDM Twitter is for, for the most part. But right. this is a more long form approach to that. Instead of 280 characters, you get yeah. you know somebody talking about mental health and being able to stay positive, get past writer's block, all of that uh, from people that are their colleagues and and stuff that people frankly don't talk about very much. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I've, I've kind of heard a lot of responses to this podcast so far being sort of in that realm, you know, people being like, oh man, that's super interesting here. And you talk about all these things, which is good. I really like it. I also like that. Um, so the way that when I started this podcast, I recorded like shitloads, well, not shitloads, like six episodes, like really quickly. Right. And then they were all sort of backlogged and coming out like over the last few weeks. And now we're like, back to you know square one real time I, yeah, yeah real time now which is good because it means at the start of all the podcasts i can push my dates and be like hey come <laughs> to my fucking show there's that there's that but also now you can incorporate the reaction because podcasting is such an intimate uh medium you're able to immediately react to people listening to these deep conversations people are eavesdropping on these conversations they wouldn't be able to hear between um an artist like yourself and someone else of your ilk who are going through the same things, talking about the same gear and technology and all that, but also talking about the the nuts and bolts of touring and, and being a musician. And that creates intimacy, which is why podcasting is such a booming form of communication because other media don't have this sort of intimacy. And because people don't listen to terrestrial radio anymore and they don't have their favorite DJ that's with them on their drive time commute to work, they lose that intimacy in their life. And so you are their friend in their ears once a week and you are imparting this knowledge and you can respond immediately to their feedback and right. that becomes part of the show as well. Yeah, totally, which I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to growing this podcast and, and all that stuff. But anyway, I'm um, speaking of touring, um, just before we get too far into the thing, we could probably describe what you do. So, you, so you're a manager for a bunch of artists. You run an agency called Reevolution. So you're also an agent. Right. Um, and then... What else do you do apart from that? You you are you run the Unsfest or you do all the talent buying for the Unsfest? I, I assist in talent buying with our uh, benevolent overlord Avi Gallant, who uh, who started it and and started the Uns ten years ago as uh, you know a, a news and music and events website. It was it was ostensibly supposed to be the jam base for electronic music, and it still is. It still functions as a great database for mainstream and underground electronic events going on all over the country. And, you know, I was brought on, I, I studied journalism in undergrad and, and grad school, and that's how I got involved in that. So I came in ostensibly as a journalist. And so, you know, I was brought in as an intern, but nobody was answering my email. So I just called myself editor-in-chief of the UNS, and suddenly <laughs> people started, um, you know, responding to my emails and then, you know, I was curating the news and all that, but just because of where my tastes are and where my, my preferences lie, 
um, you know, we, we started focusing really heavily on underground bass music. Um, you know, at, at first we were writing about Tiesto tour dates and fucking Avicii this and other mainstream acts, but like that wasn't what was interesting to us. We focused a lot on the live Tronica stuff because all the people at the UNS came from the jam band world. Like I knew nothing about electronic music before 10 years ago. I was like into fish and string cheese and metal and uh, like West African music was basically what I was addicted to, like right around 2008, 2009 when I got brought on at the UNS. So it was like, what did I learn coming into this? Like what was really hitting at the time was basically dubstep coming to America. And right. so that's where the, the focus of the UNS started shifting. And so we really like made ourselves a niche publication for very underground stuff. And so that is where my expertise is now. And, um, you know, I, I'm an agent and a manager, but like in a very specific corner of the music industry. Um, I, I suppose I should diversify, but uh, what's the fun in that? Yeah, I think you've got to do what you find interesting, not what you necessarily find monetarily gainful or, you know, socially gainful or whatever. I mean, like if you enjoy the stuff that you work with, I think that's more important than making a lot of money, right? Certainly. And or I'm, I think I'm it's comfortable. A, I think it's a balance. Like I think, um, you know, like you need to find something that's both something you enjoy and something everybody else enjoys and something you can make money from. Right. Like if you can balance those three things. That's like probably the ideal spot to be. Right. I mean, that's difficult because, yes, ostensibly I'm supposed to make money, but if I was representing some like bar band that was just super successful or like a tribute band, which is a lot of what you see now, which is crazy. And like Live Nation and AEG Rooms is a lot of tribute, like, tribute acts. Wow. Like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Maybe I should uh, do an Aphex Twin cover project. The legalities around it are so dicey and weird, but there's like <laughs> there's there's Beatles tribute bands that play Red Rocks and shit, which is that's fucking weird. unbelievable. And like Pink Floyd type tribute acts that play Red Rocks, it's it boggles my mind. I mean, but if, like, if they like maybe very very close to the real deal though, then like potentially it could be cool to see that. I suppose. Yeah, uh, there might be a tribute act. I'm talking on my ass right now. I think it's called like 1964 or something. That's just like, this is the first like Ed, Ed Sullivan experience that American audiences would have with the Beatles. And so they're like representing that to a new generation of Beatles fans. And I don't actually know how that stuff works. Maybe they're kicking back money to the estates of, uh, of the Beatles or, you know, there has to be some sort of way of getting around this. And Isn't it, it there must just thing, be um, paying I them. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, it's not parody. No, it's obviously money related. Yeah, but like I think, um, isn't there something where you like once a track is like fifty years old or something, it goes into some like licensing bin that's not right. Like, um, uh, I thought the number was ninety nine years old, which is why uh, "Happy Birthday" like suddenly is becoming to public domain, and you can hear "Happy Birthday" in is that song only movies now. Years old? Uh, yeah, Marion and Patty Hill, I want to say. Two like uh, aristocratic spinsters. <laughs> Again, I'm talking out my ass, but they yeah. own the Happy Birthday song. That's why in movies from the '80s and stuff, there would always have to be some workaround whenever there's a birthday scene with like a different song or something. But now that it's in the public domain, you can hear Happy Birthday in like movies and TV shows. Andrew Huang has this like video 
where he takes the happy birthday melody and then he takes every note from the happy birthday melody and like either shifts the notes like one by one up or down by like one octave. Uh-huh. So instead of being like dun 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 dun, um, it goes dun 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 dun. Like all the notes are like way high or way low, but they they are the same notes. They're yeah. just like you know uh, divisions or multiplications of two. What does it make you feel? Uh, you don't hear the melody anymore at all. It like completely goes away. It's, Interesting. Yeah, it's got something to do with the distance between the notes that like makes your it's brain. It's never feel. more than like a third, right? Yeah, like a second but even the distance between the notes. Yeah, but even if like say note number two is like a C sharp or something, if you make it like instead of being a C sharp one, a C sharp two or mm-hmm. three, um, and then the next note say it's supposed to be a C, and instead of making that a C, you make it like a C negative one or something, and you do that to every note in the melody, it becomes completely unrecognizable, even though it's all the same notes in the same order. <laughs> Like your brain needs them to be close to like figure it out. I mean, there's there's got to be a reason why Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and and all of these latch themselves onto our brains because there's some sort of proximity in notes or some sort of like it, it doesn't challenge you too hard, especially as people's understanding of music was extremely primitive for tens of thousands of years. Like melody or any of that was very, very basic for the longest time. If you're talking about Gregorian chants or Tuvan throat singing or whatever, like there was very little variation. And, and now we're listening to all sorts of types of different music with different styles and rhythmic patterns. And like now we're, we're uh, introducing synthetic elements into it beyond the like acoustic. So our brains are suddenly absolutely shattered with all this like influx of information, which is probably why very simple melodies still like become huge chart topping hits like uh what is that um martin garrick song animals uh, animals yeah i think it was yeti he was telling me he thinks the reason that um like four four music or you know multiples of two uh you know one two one two or one two three four one two three four the reason why that is so like nice sounding to us and feels like it comes around in a nice way rather than odd time signatures like five or seven is because of walking. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And like... Like, I wonder if we all had three legs, if we'd all be into like triplet music or something like that. Are there any animals with three legs? Um, Not that I can think of off the top of my head. I guess we're like... I wonder if you got a spider and ripped one of its legs off, if it would preference like Dream <laughs> Theater 7-8 songs. <laughs> It'd be really into broken social scene. Yeah, yeah, It's so funny. Um, oh, yeah, but uh, what I was saying is if if I had to represent a money grab tribute act, I think uh, I would not want to work as hard. I would lose interest. I would be... I, it would feel like a job. And it doesn't right. now because... I'm helping my friends who make incredible music advance their careers. Right. So it feels like uh, fulfilling for you to do. Look, I mean, how many people who are in the butt end of the music industry like myself, the business, no fun, not on stage with fucking cryo cannons, shooting confetti on people and like dancing (laughs) around. How many people who are in my part of the music industry are failed musicians? Like... True. You know, we we wanted to be up there. I got horrible stage fright every time I had a piano recital. And so, like, you know, you you still want to be a part of the scene. You want to live vicariously through your clients. And when they make music that makes you feel something, 
you are absolutely driven. You are driven to the point of madness. Like, why doesn't everyone else on the planet love this artist as much as I do? Right. So and like, when wanna... you like something so specific, like a Mr. Bill, for instance, it's like you want to shake people and be like, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't yeah, get yeah, it. Because yeah. <laughs> I was a fan first of yours before we had a right. uh, a business relationship. I was a super fan. Yeah. And that's what made me like basically stalk you in, in the business world and, and try and, you know, form a business partnership with you because I'm such a convert. I am such a believer that I think it'd be easy. It's not like working. It's like as easy as turning on a light switch to get people to know who you are and love your music because I do so much. Right. That's a good thing to talk about actually is like the way that our business partnership started, I guess, and perhaps like how other people could use that information to figure out their own stuff. So um, I guess like from my perspective, uh, I moved to America in 2014 when I was being managed by Josh Hernandez, who at the time was managing Savant. Mm -hmm. um, and he got me like my initial visa to live in America. And uh, I was working obviously with Alex Hutchinson at the time too, who, who at the time I think we were with AM only. Um, before Surefire? Yeah, before Surefire we were with AM only, which is like Skrillex's agency and right. stuff like that which I think now has merged with um, Paradigm, right? I want to say so, yeah. Yeah. So so I was working with those guys, which is kind of like big dick energy in the EDM sure. world, which didn't really suit my vibe at all. <laughs> yet I was somehow involved that way. Um, and then I think it was like, well, it wasn't that long after I moved here. It was like I moved here and so I started getting managed by him in 2014, got my visa and moved here in 2015. I think I was done with him as a, he left me actually i didn't like yeah. leave him as a manager he was just like oh you're not doing so well and i've savant was exploding at this point i think savant was exploding so it was sort of all hands on deck for savant but also he was just kind of i think i was just frustrating him with like my amount of like demands and like i wasn't even that demanding you know i was just being like hey can you like check in for flights and shit and like sure. just basic stuff um and he did a great job i'd love to have him on this podcast at some point as well josh is a really interesting dude sure yeah um but at some point he was just like oh maybe we should just like not do this and i was like all right sure and then for a while it was my girlfriend at the time managing me samantha <laughs> um and she didn't do a great job and i was kind of advancing a lot of my own shows for like a year yeah and then i suppose like that's when actually i think the first time we hung out was because you were doing your own podcast the right. podcast this the second sort of iteration of some sort of streaming thing i've I come from media. I come from like radio. Right. And so I've always been obsessed with talking to people in this format, which like I'm obsessed with podcasts too. Yeah. And it's such an intimate like experience. And so I've, I've been trying to do this. Like I tried my own podcast 10 fucking years ago now. And I think I was maybe ahead of the curve in podcasts in a lot of way, but also like I didn't have the star power behind it. Like you're someone who people respect and come to from music. I think if you did the Ants podcast again now, it would probably go well. I think you'd like, it's a lot of effort, but I think yeah. one of the things that you did that made it not work was maybe like made it too difficult on yourself. Like you made it have to be streamed with video and like all that kind of stuff. No, that I mean, that that was the live Facebook. Wait, what, what the fuck was I doing at it that point? It was still the Ants podcast, I think. You, I remember you had me on there and then like a week or two later, you had Joshua on there. Oh yeah, that was with Brian. That was with Mux Mool. That was our that was our late lunch. That was our Facebook streaming, like almost like a talk show type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Uns podcast I did was like an actual podcast, streaming and downloadable and 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 all that. Um, you know, with the RSS, you know, feed and and you know, showing up in people's podcatchers and all that. Um, but this was 2010, 2011, and 
people in this scene were not listening to podcasts or if they were, it was like as a, like a mix, basically they were downloading mixes and nobody was really talking or interviewing these people. I did 150 episodes between 2010 and 2012 or 13 when I Damn, eventually I'm petered on like out on episode it. episode seven right now. If, it seems like seven. a lot, but like, <laughs> yeah, I, I interviewed everyone from, yeah, I did the Tiestos and the Avicis and the Marcus Schultzes and all that. You interviewed Tiesto? Yeah, but they were all by phone, or like 90% of them were by phone. Yeah, say fuck that. So you, you need audio things. quality. That's why podcast fans hate live episodes, because yeah. there's so much degradation in, in, in audio quality. Yeah, plus I think like there's degradation in the quality of the conversation too, if you do them over the phone. I feel like sitting in a room with someone like we are now, it's just, you get a completely different conversation to whether or not, like if you're sitting, you know, um, just like, you know, room by yourself talking to someone over skype or something right. and like then the call keeps dropping and interrupting like points you're trying to make right or, you know somebody will be like making a point they'll like finish their point and you'll be like oh sorry that like last minute was just glitching out or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was difficult um but you know i i did i i got a lot out of it and i i had a ton of interview experience coming from radio but like coming into a scene where not a lot of people were used to having long form interviews like this where um, where they had the opportunity to really explain themselves. It, it produced a lot of cool insights. Like I got Pretty Lights to talk about um, his process when he had all the members of like Lettuce and what became his Pretty Lights live band in for Color Map of the Sun. And I was like, you have these incredible artists in and they want to, um, you know, they're really excited to be with each other. I bet it was awesome to just like listen to them jam. And he was like, no, it wasn't. They'd be jamming and I'd come into the room and I'd be like, are you done? All right, now I want you to do it this way. And he doesn't know music theory. So he'd be like, give me a drum beat that's like this, Adam. And Adam would play, you know, a certain drum beat. He's like, okay, like, give me a little slop on it. Make it a little more syncopated. Then, all right, you know, give me give me some dirty guitar. Give me, yeah, yeah, like that, but like change a little. So it, it wasn't like he had these incredible musicians in there to like jam and he'd take breaks from them. He was constructing these breaks that he would then sample that became the album. So in a in a regular interview, you wouldn't get that out of him and you wouldn't get that sort of anecdote, uh, anecdote like that. But with, with this long form uh, medium, you really get people in their element talking about their music in a way that they can't when they're on stage and all you're hearing from them is, one, two, three, let me see your hands. You know, like right, yeah, totally. you, DJs don't get to necessarily talk about their craft in any sort of medium like this except for short little Q and A's that, that show up in, in music blogs. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I agree. So to continue on the story of my perspective about how you became my manager, I think after the um, time that we did the Ants podcast, we went and got ramen yeah. in Denver. And I think that was the day that we were like, all right, let's do the management thing. Yeah. And I had known that your previous management situation was not working or was, you know, I mean, it was. It was just like um, Savant was just taking all of this dude's resources, which right. he kind of needed because he's, you know, autistic or Asperger's or whatever. Sure. So he kind of needs that extra help to like, you know, get on a plane. Like so So Josh was not only his manager, he was also his full-time tour manager. Right. And pretty much his full-time life set up. Yeah. He, you know, no, like he, he would it. like kind of get his groceries for him and all that stuff. So it was just like, uh, yeah, he... 
he did not have the capacity i feel like to manage anybody else and was trying to right and then i think he was just like getting maybe too stressed i don't know whatever ended up happening it was he was a fine manager it's just i think savant was taking up more of his time and resources and it made sense because savant at the time was making shitloads of money right yeah yeah so he was paying him to take up his time exactly (laughs) is he are you in touch with him at all or uh we we've dm'd a few times on twitter and i've hung out with alex like maybe three times or something he's a nice guy he actually doesn't seem that autistic to me every time i talk to him okay yeah he, he seems like um definitely a lot less autistic than i think a lot of people think he is is he still producing at the same clip that he was i believe maybe he's extraordinarily prolific especially at that time yeah um yeah for sure he's a fucking amazing producer but um yeah i don't know i mean like I think he is still producing a lot, but I think it's for maybe like games and film and like maybe, sense. you know, building a big library for like sync stuff and royal, sure. you know, to get royalties going and st- I don't know, whatever, whatever he's doing. I think he just put a release out too. Okay. I haven't really been following him that much. I feel like he was making such a specific sound that had such a narrow window of time, like that complexro sound. But also it was like very chip tuny and like video yeah. gamey and stuff. Yeah. And and also like I think he was kind of mixing that sort of monster cat complexro sound with the video gamey stuff with like the new Skrillexy shit that was coming in at the right. time and, and it just all was hitting really nicely. Right. Yeah. I mean that's the thing about this particular industry is that trends like <laughs> happen and then burn out so quickly that it's impossible to be, you know, very identified with a specific style too closely. Otherwise, once that's gone, like Moombatone, like came and was gone immediately. Right, but Dylan Francis sticked around, stuck around. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess I guess if you're like super iconic in some certain way, but I, yeah, I, I think if you went to a Dylan Francis show, there's still a lot of different elements finding their way in there. Um, but yeah. It, I guess, yeah. I have a funny story about Dylan Francis. I would love to hear it. Um, apparently, one day he played Still Dream Festival, and he was in a cabin, and some guy in the cabin had a DMT pen, and he gave it to Dylan Francis and was like, yeah, hit this, and Dylan like hit it and like fully like blasted off on DMT. Sure. And then the guy was like, uh, do you want to do it again? And he was like, you do this shit again? <laughs> <laughs> I won't say the name of the guy who gave him the pen, but it's a somebody I don't think is lying. <laughs> no, I yeah, yeah that's uh, yeah. Um, I, I've 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 done it enough to where you know I think I've seen everything I need to see on DMT. Yeah, I'm talking like a handful of times now, and this is probably spread over two or three years, maybe ten years back. And mm-hmm. like, there are people who say that they see new things and learn new things about themselves, like. I've experienced so much ego death. I experience ego death upon waking up in the morning. Like (laughs) that's where I'm at with, with my self-awareness. So like, I think that I'm very much like, I'm not in danger of becoming a narcissist or anything like that, or becoming too much about self because I, yeah, my, my, my ego is done dead at this point. Right. I don't think that's the goal for me doing DMT. At least I think I'm, I mean, I honestly mostly do it recreationally as much as people say it's like some medicinal like, you know, thing, which I mean, sure it is like, especially if you're taking it on the level of like ayahuasca or something. Sure. If you're doing it properly in some sort of ceremony with people whose like, like entire societies are built around this as a sacrament, then like, sure, you're probably 
seeing it and doing it responsibly and doing it in such a way that you are learning things. But like blasting off in someone's basement or goddamn, I don't know how people do it at live shows. That is beyond me. Oh, dude, when I was playing at Cervantes the other day with Chris, I could smell so much fucking DMT during my <laughs> set. And I was playing like huge dubstep bangers. I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, for me, I lose complete connection with the outside world. So it doesn't matter if I was in a library or at like a crazy electronic show because like I'm not hearing anything anymore. I'm not seeing anything that's around me anymore. I'm literally on another planet. Like, Well, it depends how much you do. Like I, I feel like a lot of people think about DMT as like an all the way on or all the way off kind of thing. It's like I'm either here in this world or I'm completely blasted off in another world. Sure. But for me, it's very much like I can step it up to very different levels. Like I can have just enough that I get a little bit sweaty and everything's a little wobbly and I just feel like kind of grounded as fucking like a little high or I can like do a little bit more than that and if I close my eyes, I start to see a lot of shit or I can do even more than that and then that's when I'm like in another world. And I, I look at it the same way as alcohol, you know, it's like I can have one beer sure. and I can be like a little bit buzzed and like, you know, social or I can have 20 beers, be completely antisocial, unable to have a conversation with anybody spewing everywhere and sure. completely blacked out, drunk, and like that whole chunk of memory is deleted from my brain the next day. I, w I was doing it at the time when, you know, the research chemicals boom where we were just getting packets of strange substances off the internet from Arizona. So like, right. <laughs> who knows what the measurement of the shit was or like what we're even doing Plus or probably what also, analog it was. Yeah. So it was definitely on or off for me anytime okay. that I did it. Yeah. Well, also these days, DMT comes quite often in the form of a vape pen. Sure. Which makes yep. it super easy to like level it up or whatnot. I feel like yeah. if you do it in the powder sense where you do it through like a exactly like a That's, piece or whatever, it's yeah. very much more, it's very, it's way more difficult to to level it up that way. It's more of an on-off kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But if you ever get it in a vape pen, that to me is like the best way to do it because that's where you can kind of yeah, very carefully gauge your dosage and you can kind of like dose yourself up slowly depending sure. on like how high you want to get. The thing with me and, and psychedelics is at this point because of all the names and dates and things I have to keep track of in my head, my anxiety goes through the roof with even the slightest like thought of I would be physically unable to get on a phone call right now if somebody needed me in this situation. It's like, right. our ticket count is so-and-so at this venue tonight. Who's all on the guest list? Where's our runner? Like, what's our hotel? Like, any of that stuff, any of that information, I really feel like it has to be at my fingertips at any one time. And so... But it kind of is if you have all your advances sweet, right? Certainly, yeah. But you know this more than anyone else. You could be completely prepared for a show and something comes up and there's just some sort of missed link in communication or some promoters trying to pull a fast one on one of your artists and you have to jump into action, you know, at three in the morning when they're trying to settle up. And, and, you know, if you're incapacitated in any way, that's almost impossible. Here's the trick. Never have to settle up. Just always <laughs> get the money wired. No, no, no. Exactly. Exactly. But, um, you know, there's, there's always circumstances that arise or somebody gets stranded, or a travel situation, if a, if a flight's delayed or something like that. That, that one's tough. And the, the thing that makes that tough on the artist end of things is like, for instance, if I'm at an airport and my flight gets fucked, 
um, it's just really difficult to like whip my laptop out, connect to an internet network and like sort it all out there. Mm-hmm. If the internet's kind of shit, especially if a lot of people are like trying to do the same thing, it really like fucks the network up. Right. And the, the, the internet speed and just comfortability of like searching things and figuring stuff out in an airport whilst you're in the midst of that problem is mm-hmm. sort of difficult, which is generally why I would call you in that issue because I'm just like, hey, you're in a comfortable spot with a computer right? and decent internet. How yeah. about you look at this? Exactly. And... I'm also a bit of a travel nerd and, you know, I don't like when situations go wrong, but I like to know how many airports there are in a city or what airlines fly in and out of the city or how to use the specific rules that govern airlines where they have to communicate with one another and help you out if they've canceled a flight and put you on another airline. The specific little tricks of the trade that um, that you can get to get out of those situations. It's kind of like a game or a challenge for me. So that's kind of fun. I love looking at like... It does sound nerdy, but like I, I do love like just searching various flight paths for shows that I'm not even on just to like know how <laughs> difficult it would be to get from Fayetteville, Arkansas to to to, you know, Norfolk, Virginia. Right. It's an interesting thing for me to determine which airlines are doing it, where the average cost is. It's funny to look at a flight where you could get from Bangor, Maine to Cleveland for the same cost that it would take you to get from Bangor to Scotland. And it's like, what is the reasoning for that? Why is this particular route not covered by this? Like, what is the... Do you always um, search flights with cookies disabled and stuff like that? Um, I I mix it up. Okay, interesting. I mix it up to see what's going on because I have have tricked myself into thinking that I've increased the price of flights by searching it too much. Really? Yeah. Like if a lot of people are searching a specific route, that means it's in demand, right? Right. And so if a lot of people want that flight, then the cost of the flight can go up. Yeah. But if it's a unpopular route that nobody is searching, maybe the airline reduces it or doesn't charge as much because it's it's you know, it's not getting as much action. So yeah, yeah. I've I've convinced myself of a lot of things in searching for flights. <laughs> right. I've noticed um this is like a thing that I've noticed a lot more in the last like twelve months. Is that with flights, it's so common now for the flight, like one flight to sort of go to two places on the one trip kind of um, to to make it so that it's not um, so that the plane isn't empty. Right. You know, like from Denver, there'll be a flight that goes from like Denver to San Francisco to San Jose or some shit like that. Sure. if, if there is an airport there or just an example yeah. like for instance my flight on the way here stops through nashville it went from minneapolis to nashville to dc southwest does that a lot yeah um and i've actually never been on one where i've had to stop somewhere and then go somewhere else until yesterday it's fun um but i quite often i'll be on a flight and i'll see that it's like going to another place and when i'm getting off the plane they'll be saying like i'll oh, stay in your seats if you're heading to blah 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 whatever yeah. Then you really get to see how little they clean the plane in between flights. Oh, yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. They literally just go through every aisle and just sort of like... Just make sure whatever. there's not like a used condom or like an op- somebody is obviously <laughs> thrown up somewhere. Yeah. Totally. Like it's very light cleaning. So people that walk around in bare feet on a flight, like God bless you, you've got some super resistance to, to germs or something. Cause like, <laughs> yeah, planes are f- absolutely filthy. I love airports. I love flights. I... Uh, like Wait, really? You like airports and I flights? I love airports because everything you need is at your fingertips. If you've lost your headphones, there's a air, like a headphone vending machine. There's books. There's all the sorts of different kinds of shitty food that I could ever want because I sometimes am in the mood for shitty food. But yeah. I hate the actual flying part of it. Just because of the dirtiness of the plane? 
Ah, uh, there's that. There's also like I can't sleep on a flight. Yeah, I'm always getting sick. Me from too, my man. Because like, they're all just the time. tubes of disgustingness. Yeah, uh, they're a tube of farts. Yep, exactly. <laughs> tube of farts, thirty-five thousand feet in the air. Yeah, I also don't think the body should like go that high. Probably not. I mean, yeah. NASA's tested it out for a while, and um, you know, I, I suppose. If you're flying enough, maybe you're like losing your muscle mass or something because you're uh, you're under less gravitational force. Maybe maybe it's insignificant if you're still within the atmosphere. But yeah, Tommy um, from Broken Note told me that he thinks every flight you go onto is the same as exposing yourself to like twenty X rays worth of radiation. Also, there's security. There's that. Oh, yeah, the millimeter wave scanner, <laughs> which uh, as far as Bill Burr is concerned, um, they're just like slowly cooking everybody. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. That's fine. I, I'm I'm fine if everyone's getting cooked if I don't get blown out of the sky. Um, it's such a like bullshit system, though. Like as far as I know, the TSA is like totally just security theater, right? Underfunded. Like, I, don't, I don't think under... That, I don't think it's underfunded. Oh, uh, maybe it is, but like I definitely think that. Um, I mean, there's not that much training going into it. It's definitely, right. it's definitely to make us feel safer. Yeah, exactly. There's like no actual like evidence that they've stopped any. How long ago do you think the shoe bomber was? Oh, uh, it's like what recent, right? No, I think it couldn't be fewer than ten years ago. Right. Couldn't be, and we're still taking off our shoes. Wait, at but the there airport. was um. Oh right, yeah, but also there was um that other bomber recently that flew from somewhere to like Brussels or, or something, right? And then blew something up or? I can't remember, but I mean, those Samsung phones that were exploding are probably just as dangerous as that shoe bomb would have been. I feel like I watched something on YouTube of some guy who like wore some glasses that were made out of a specific type of metal. And then he like got on the plane and like shaved the edge of the glasses down. And it was like some material that he could have just made a bomb on a plane with. And he was like, I had just got through security with like all, like, he's like, oh, they took my shampoo and stuff, but like, I've still got all the stuff I need to make a bomb. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you really got to take a plane out of the sky that bad, um, you know, they're going to figure out a way to do it. And I think uh, terrorists are probably content to not do that anymore. I mean, like it doesn't even incite that much terror. In, at least in me. I, I think it, what it does is it makes governments like clamp down on their own citizens and like create enough strife between the uh, oppressed and the oppressors so that you create enough tension in these countries to begin with. And so you lead to the authoritarian rise of, of dictators and, and right wing thinking. So you've accomplished your goals by just doing a few things. They've already planted the seeds. You know, I, I don't think there have been major terrorist attacks and while there's certainly individual shootings and stuff in this country but it's not like really affecting geopolitics except for what has already been in motion and now you know we see the the rise of authoritarianism because um 20 years ago we were like safety first safety above all else (laughs) and so i think i think the i guess maybe the damage is done so you don't need to terrorize anymore right um, so you're a brown Indian man and you, I live, sure in, am. you live in Charlottesville, <laughs> Virginia. How yeah. are, um, you were there during the Nazi riots, right? Yeah, I was at a bluegrass festival with my in-laws. We were going there in the morning and we were supposed to go, you know, counter protest in the afternoon. But I, I, you know, everything started well before these things were scheduled to start. And so I was like on Twitter basically during this bluegrass festival, like waiting to leave and like go join everyone downtown. I was like, 
oh shit, they've already killed someone. I guess we're not going there. And yeah, that, that city was entirely shut down by like, Fuck. it was under martial law by five, six o'clock that evening. And there were roves of like SWAT teams with guns and stuff just Fuck. patrolling the city. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we say that it was, uh, rednecks from North Carolina for the most part, or other parts of the country that came in and it wasn't the actual people of Charlottesville, but you know, it's, uh, it's UVA, which is, um, you know, a very elite university and breeds a sort of bow tie racism that's, you know, ruled that place since the days of Jefferson, like Thomas Jefferson created university of Virginia. So like, that sort of uh, level of benevolent racism has always been there. It's just the overt stuff made a big splash because of the Confederate statue and the the unfortunate death of a citizen of our city. But uh, yeah, it's always bubbling under the surface. Right. Um. And in Charlottesville or like in the TSA or anything, do you ever notice like racial profiling stuff happening to you? Personally? Oh, sure. Uh, my wife is white, and whenever we're flying anywhere together. We sail on through, but, uh, you know, when I go solo, as it were, I, uh, I always get the extra pull aside, swab my fingers for gunpowder residue or whatever they're checking for, bomb making residue. Like almost every time? Uh, yeah, I would say 85, 90% of the time. Fucking crazy. I get it like maybe 10% of the time, if that, maybe like even 5% of the time. If I, I can, I, I can even game the system by like how the length of my beard is. <laughs> like Jesus. it's yeah it's it's that like if you have a bigger beard they'll like pull you over yeah more. oh yeah it's uh yeah you could set your watch by it which is part of the whole security theater thing anyway like if they see if other passengers see the brown guy get pulled over and get extra attention and he's let free yeah, they're good. like oh i feel great that was worried <laughs> about that one guy but they checked him out so i feel good so right. it's not so much that they're profiling me for the sake of making sure I'm good. They're showing everybody around that, hey, we got our eye on this guy too. He's fine. He's he's passed the <laughs> test. That's so fucked. But uh, what, what I was trying to say about uh, air travel is, um, I was talking about this with my therapist yesterday because all I talk about is my job. Cause you have a therapist? Dumb. I do. I just started therapy a, a couple weeks back. Nice. and uh, Did you have like any issues that sort of made you want to start going there? Um, just stress and workload and all that. So you're just and, going there to sort of process that with like a... Yeah, and he's an anxiety specialist, but like um, basically all I did was explain every hour of every day, like what I'm going through and what things I had on my mind and what things I had to do. So basically it was just like reading my fucking planner aloud to him. So I think, I'm, <laughs> I, like think I might be done with straight him. from G-Cal. Yeah, exactly. Like, right. and then I've got this show and then there's a show in Boulder and there's one in Asheville and, you know, it's... Right. I, I didn't find as much use in it as I would like to, but... Um, I was telling him like I can see the the effects of climate change more acutely than most people because you know I can keep track in my spreadsheets the number of delays and cancellation and air travel just due to inclement weather and oh, so the rise of that over the years like I'm sure you know the National Weather Service is tracking this stuff too but like I can actually see that there have been an increase in cancellations of flights and, and delays due to weather due to weather. That's fucking crazy. Actually. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but yeah. So you actually, every time there's like a delay or a cancellation, you mark it in your calendar. Sure. Because I want to make sure that people get to shows on time. I got to make sure that, 
Um, so uh, a lot of my clients live on the West Coast, right? right? And a lot of the base scene is concentrated in different pockets around the United States. So Colorado is obviously a big hub. Chicago. Definitely Colorado and Chicago are places of weird weather too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As is another big base area, which is the Southeast. Right. Like uh, the number of like hurricanes that come tearing up the mid-Atlantic. Did you hear about um, Trump's solution to the hurricane? Shoot him up with nuclear weapons. Nuke the hurricane, dude. <laughs> that that whole that whole thought has been around for a long time. It's so just that the weirdest stupid. shit like is in his specific silo of information. Like he's so like like uh, his his particular window of information comes from such specific sources like Breitbart or Fox News, and like you can always tell that what he tweets about or is going to talk about whatever is going to be his pet project for the week or the day, because he's got ADHD, um, comes directly from a specific article or something Lou Dobbs said. So, like, without a doubt, somebody on Breitbart posted something like, there's no such thing as climate change, and even if there is, all we got to do is nuke these hurricanes. So he sees something like that, it, like, gets stuck in his brain because he's the most powerful person on Earth the heads of all the major weather bureaus and the top scientists in the world have to like go to meetings with him. He says something stupid like that and they have to be like, okay, sir, we'll take that under advisement. And like, they can't just be like, that's fucking stupid because they're all, you know, they're all cronies and, and have to tip their hat to the the boss man. But wait, so you, yeah. you started going to therapy. You told your therapist that you could see the changes in the climate yeah. more clearly than your average person. <laughs> yeah. And then what happened? <laughs> Um, I just don't think we're a good fit because he wants to keep circling back to like being more present or being more like, I don't know. I don't know what he wants for me, but because he is a, a therapist that specializes in anxiety, that's the lens through which he sees everything. So like all my like issues that I come with and, you know, I could be horribly clinically depressed or I could be, you know, just uh, focused do, do on dark thoughts and exercise? stuff. I don't exercise. I, I used to, but that, now that I've become busier, like that's the first thing to go out the window. Same with me. Uh, when I'm busy, that's the first thing that goes. But like, I should spend that hour exercising instead of going to fucking honestly, therapy. dude. Like, yeah, there's for me, no question. For me, no exercise um, absolutely fixes my anxiety and depression. If I exercise every day, I just don't get anxious or depressed. And if I eat well, that just like doubles down on the issue. Absolutely. And if I just do those two things, especially if I don't drink as well, like if I, um, the main thing that gives me anxiety these days is if I drink a lot and then the next morning drink a shitload of coffee. Sure. Those two things combine really badly for anxiety. But like, I used to have like crippling anxiety to the point where like I couldn't go to school a lot of days and like yeah. to the point where, um, I, yeah, I always felt like I was dying and shit and like just, you know, I probably was, but like, <laughs> um, but as soon as I started exercising and eating pretty good. Oh Yeah just enough to like not have anxiety basically is how much I like to exercise and eat well. Um, it's, it basically has fixed my life completely. Just like I do CrossFit like maybe twice a week and then I do like, I don't know, some other form of exercise like once or twice a week. Sure. I, don't, I don't even exercise that much, like three to four times a week for like an hour. I've got home gym equipment. It's like there's no, no excuse for me yeah, not to do it. Well, and I wake up at like three or four in the morning. Just honestly, yeah, well, that's a good time shoot to wake from anxiety. But the so thing I should is, just go man, and exercise then. Yeah, but home exercising is tough unless you're like a fucking fitness freak. 
I feel like what you want to do is get yourself into like a class where there's like, you know, five, 10 people and a trainer. And then that way it's like, you're somewhat subconsciously competing against the other people, but also like, I don't know. It's just, it's easy to not have to like think about it as much. Like if you go into your home gym, you're like, all right, what exercises am I going to do? And like, you have to come up with a plan and all that shit. Whereas if you just go into a class, someone will just be like, Hey, run over there and then back and now lift this thing this many times this way and now run over there and back again and now jump over there. (laughs) I have a problem with authority and I don't love people telling me what to do. And I'm just very cynical by nature. So like, but if it's like in the sense of exercise, I I understand that. I understand the goals. If like I listen to this jock who's like shredded and I've just like followed Honestly, the simple rules. Most like, of the exercise like trainers that I've had have not been shredded jocks. Really? No, they've been kind of like just average looking people who just know how to put together workout plans or something like that. Or hmm. I mean, they're not like unfit, but they're not like full right. blown shredded jocks. I mean, to get shredded is fucking hard. Sure. I mean, otherwise everyone would just be walking around shredded, right? Well, do you think that would decrease the uh, the uh, attractiveness? Or like shreddedness? Of, yeah, of like the perceived attractiveness of people. If th- everyone was fit. Yeah, I think. Do you think everyone would have super good personalities too? I don't think all shredded people have super good personalities. No, no, no. But if, if like everybody was like very attractive, very fit, do you think we'd have like better personality? Like we would be forced to be like, we'd have to have some sort of other facet of our, like our being in order to attract people or, or be superior to one another. I would like to think that personalities are already the more attractive thing of a person. Oh, you're 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 not shallow at all. You're you're a very deep person. Well, um, I know that like from my own perspective, I've like had the option to have sex with quite attractive women and uh-huh. then haven't wanted to because of their personalities. Okay. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, sure. And um, vice versa, like um Yeah. I've been really attracted to people who I would not have necessarily thought originally were very attractive, but have turned out to be super cool people and stuff. I, I absolutely agree. There's with like you. obviously a good middle ground there of like personality and <laughs> sure, attractiveness. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I do agree with you. I just, um, I want, I always, you know, I have to go to the extreme case and just wonder if like, I don't think if everyone was shredded, it would immediately make everybody have good personalities, but I do think that it would like, rid society of a few things it would rid society of obviously fat shaming sure and it would rid society of like probably a bunch of ego shit because you know these people who are like there wouldn't there would be no like hopefully less depression of people being like down on themselves and stuff like that i mean by proxy of being shredded you have to exercise a lot so let's assume that everybody just exercised a lot yeah and of course society would be much better if everyone exercised a lot have you noticed that a lot of uh popular djs are very tall I have not actually noticed. You that. haven't. Uh, like, with, like very popular DJs. Yeah, I'm told in Dead Mouse by a lot. Well, okay. Um, uh, Joshua, for instance, Josh six quite, four. Yeah, he's quite tall. Um, Pretty Liqu- Liquid Stranger, not tall. Okay. Massive, um, not tall. Uh, he's not really super popular yet, but he will be. Bass Neck is not very it, tall. Isn't he? He's fairly tall, right? He's six I've one. I've never stood next to him, but I don't think. How tall are you? Six, six two? Six four. Oh, okay. Or maybe six three and a half. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I stood next to a guy the other day who was six five and he fucking towered over me. But also it's like, I don't meet people very often that are taller than me. So whenever I meet anybody whose eyes are like even just above my eyes, I'm like, whoa, like it, it seems really <laughs> big to me. Even if they're like half an inch taller than me or something. 
So so humor me and, and let's say that on average, like uh successful DJs are just on average a couple inches taller. So you take that to its next logical conclusion. Why do we why do we um why are we attracted to to height in our society as it's set up now? Because that denotes safety and power yeah, and all that. And what a DJ true. does is it has to convince everyone in the room to get on the same page and do what they want them to do, dance or listen to this. Um, like mass hypnosis kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, exactly. I just don't think that's true because Tipper is not tall. Spongle, But he, doesn't, he also doesn't try to get people to um, wave their hands in the air or like one, two, yeah. three, jump. He doesn't get on the mic ever. Right. So like it, it really is a, a reliance on... On the music His itself. music is very tall. His music is extraordinarily tall. <laughs> We're going to see him tonight. Yeah. Are you excited about that? Yeah, actually. I am. Yeah, I am. I've seen him. I've seen him at Bisco. That was sick. Okay. Really cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious. His set at Bisco was fucking heavy. I also seen him at Infrasound earlier this year, mm-hmm. which was also sick. His set at Infrasound was like kind of more techie. And his one at Bisco was just drop, 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 which sure. was kind of interesting for a tipper set just to hear tipper drops. Well, I mean, you get that he knows set and setting too. And like, you yeah. know, he wants to deliver a certain sound to oh, yeah, a certain like audience. The master of set and setting. The last time I saw him was Spongle Red Rocks, which was... Wait, you were there? Yeah, I was standing next to you. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. Uh, I got was fucking blasted on <laughs> mushrooms that night. So like this dude came up to me in the audience um, and he was like, holy shit, Mr. Bill. And he gave me a Tootsie Roll sized... I remember this. Yeah. So the, so the Tootsie Roll thing was like... um. Half an ounce of mushrooms condensed into this goo. Right. That was the size of a Tootsie Roll. You really wanted me to eat mushrooms that night. Yeah. And it would have been fun, but I would have been completely useless as a manager. I had desert dwellers there. I would have been yeah. completely <laughs> useless. Yeah. I, I So I just started pulling bits off this Tootsie sure. Roll and rolling them into a bowl and eating them. And um, yeah, by the time we like got out of Red Rocks, I was fucking blasted, man. <laughs> you were very funny. And there was people recognize you everywhere because you were tall. Yeah. And like, yeah, I think I think there's some sort of cult leader, uh, some sort of, there has to be some sort of correlation. I, I should talk to a sociologist. There's probably a sociologist who's into this type of music. If you're a sociologist, reach out to, uh, do you have a podcast email yet? Uh, just reach out to MGMT at MrBillsTunes.com. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, this is your request, man. Just- that's true. That's true. Um, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, somebody do a a peer-reviewed study on DJ height popularity. Put those on on some cross axes and, and let's get some information on this. Yeah, that probably wouldn't be too hard to do. I mean, you could probably just pull from Wikipedia pages, like heights, and sure. then you could probably pull... Tiesto's like, tall. Yeah, he's. I think he's pretty tall. Armin Van Buren's short. Yeah. And he's Scandinavian. Shouldn't he be taller? Yeah. Yeah, I think Scandinavian people should be tall in general. Yeah. I think like, East. Uh, hey, so I did 23andMe the other day. Have you done that before? Oh, I, I don't want to give the police information should I choose to commit crimes later. Yeah, I told Squanto about this and he was like, dude, they're going to fucking clone you and then torture your clone. <laughs> <laughs> Some real Jerry Bruckheimer shit. The yeah, island. Yeah. yeah. I, I had that fucking thought when I was a child. I thought it was a genius. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to write a story about like... A fucking place where they like they just keep your clones because you need to harvest them for organs later on and it fucking turned out to be a movie turns out to be like a very <laughs> universal thought that people have but right. we're so there and like yeah why wouldn't you keep a fucking cryogenically frozen clone for when your liver yeah. or your lung inevitably fails yeah, like so you can just get a new one just 
like just make sure they're not conscious. Take that part of the brain out. And, right. and you know, it's it's my DNA. Make me another one of me. I, I bet rich <laughs> people are already doing this. There's no Surely. question. So, yeah, I did 23andMe because um, I know that I have some Aboriginal blood in me. Really? Yeah. So I know that for a fact. Like the Australian government, like in my family tree, if you go like a few generations back, my mum – my mom's side is like fairly Aboriginal, like mm-hmm. a few generations back, like maybe three or four, like great grandmother was probably like fully Aboriginal or something like that. Wow. Or great great grandmother rather. Is it um, is it in Australia like it is here in the United States, like people want to brag like, oh yeah, I'm one eighth Cherokee or whatever. Like yeah, but is, is it is it is it cool in Australia to be like, oh, I'm part Aboriginal? No, but the government does give you free shit. Oh if okay. you are at all Aboriginal. Wow. Um, like if it's at all in your bloodline. So I get like f- way, like, I mean, healthcare there is already free. Right. But I also get free dental because I'm free because I'm Aboriginal. And I also like. What um, a cool kicker. Free I, dental. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you usually don't get dental for free in Australia unless you're Aboriginal. Wow. Um, and then on top of that, like you can get like different sets of like payments from like Centrelink, which is basically like social security system there. Yeah. And the payments for Aboriginal people are just like slightly higher. And then you can also study at like. Uh, not like the big ind- independent colleges. Like I went to SAE and I had to pay for that. Right. But like if I went to like a community type college, like TAFE or something like that, or I think Sydney University, I probably could have gone to and um, that would have been covered by the government too. Wow. Uh, and I think I can still do that. I think that might still be an option for me if I want. But anyway, um, I did 23andMe and it turns out that I'm like 1.5% Melanesian, which is like basically Aboriginal. Okay. Um, and here's the funnier thing is I'm like 1.9% Indian. So I'm more Indian than Aboriginal. <laughs> you know, what's crazy, you know, I mean, Mike Wallace, uh, Osmetic, yeah. one half of crunch with Tipper yep. looks very, very British. Yeah. It's extraordinarily British. Yeah. And so when he told me that he has an Indian grandparent, I want to say, I was blown away. And I was like, I was probably three or four White Claws in at, at Celasta at this point. I have still never drank a White Claw. It's fucking delicious. Yeah. It's the best. And if you drink them properly, you don't get hungover. You don't get too drunk. You're How like, do you right, drink a White claw, claw properly? Well, you don't slam it. You don't shotgun it. You sip on it. You, you drink it like an adult, which is very hard for me because it goes down so smooth. And it's a good daytime drink. So it's a good way to start yelling at Mike Wallace in the middle of the day at a festival <laughs> demanding to see his birth certificate. But like... <laughs> Uh, the other day, he sent me, like, <clears throat> photos from the 40s of his, like, fully Indian family. Wow. And it is so fucking incredible because, yeah, he 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 looks extraordinarily white. Yeah. So it turns out I am extraordinarily white. But you are, you have a little Indian in you. I have, yeah, about 3% um, not white. So What's, what's the rest? English, well, straight up? Yeah, pretty much. So it's, like, all sorts of... Uh, European stuff. So it's like 60% British, maybe like 7% French, um, 5% German, okay. bunch of Irish and Scottish and Welsh. And like, yeah, basically just a, a little bit of Spanish too. Like just basically all sorts of shit from like up all there. sorts of white Europeanism. Yeah. I'm basically Euro trash. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're like, you're the, um, you distilled all the good parts from all those traditions. Right. You got into one. <laughs> I Real have naps in the Australian. afternoon. <laughs> I drink a shitload of beer. <laughs> yeah. But you don't. And and you're not drinking now, which is no. fucking crazy to me. And like, yeah. you know, I, I got into music management and stuff because, like I said, failed musician. But like being at home and knowing that you have to be in airports day after day and 
in other people's cars and like in green rooms for hours at a time just waiting oh, to yeah. go on. Sucks. Like I cannot believe that you could do that sober a lot of the time. Oh uh, yeah. So for me, like, that's um, how I pass the time is like eating and drinking. Totally. Yeah. No, me too. But like. For me, I think it's just like a, maybe two years ago, I came to this conclusion of like, if I don't control my drinking, I won't have a long career. Correct. And like, I won't be able, like, because I noticed I was like, I was still in the studio every day, but I was just in the studio, like fucking around and I wasn't really right. getting anything finished. I was like starting a lot of stuff and I was always like in Ableton, yeah. but I just was working so inefficiently and so badly that I was like never really getting releases together. And then it was at the start of 2017, when I was like, all right, I'm going to like, or maybe it was the start of 2018. It was one of the... I think you decided you were going to do the first three months of 2018. Yeah, so it was 2018. Stone Cold Sober. Yeah. Um, and that's what KJ does. He's yeah. like, he does the reset button every year. Right. Um, to like kind of reset any alcoholism, gives himself a full three month sober break. Yeah. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. So at the start of 2018, did a three month break and then just bam, finished Apophenia. And I was like, oh, sweet, being sober is cool. You can like actually finish music really easily right. when your like, head is all straight and shit. So you, you get foggy. You already said that you, you suffer anxiety, but like your, your hangovers manifest themselves as anxiety, right? Or maybe am I, am I just projecting here? Because uh, that's where my yeah, I get anxiety ang- comes from. Yeah, like straight totally. up from hangovers. Yeah, I get and a lot I, of... I can't even like open email or like... Yeah, you know. totally. Absolutely. I get that. Um, like a lot of anxiety from, from hangovers and... Yeah, I find it really hard to get productive. And then, you know, maybe by 4 p.m. in the afternoon, that's kind of like dissipated and I'll start to get productive. And then like two hours later, I'll get drunk again. And then the whole thing happens again. So it's like I get like a when I'm drinking, like a two hour window of the day where I'm actually able to to do anything. Yeah. Um, And with not drinking, I can just I mean, I'm just always on. And I always know I also noticed while I was drinking a lot um, and for people who are listening, drinking a lot, I was drinking every day, basically. Yeah. Um, And when I tell people how much I was drinking every day, the reactions are like varied. Some people are like, oh, that's not that much. And then other people are like, that's insane. Basically, tell me, shock me. I think I already know the answer, but it's tell like, me like a six pack of IPAs a day, basically. And that's was, a lot of, but they were like 8%. Like, yeah. So like pretty slapping beers. And I would, over the course of like a session, like, you know, five, six hours. Okay. So. But I mean, you know, it's still a lot of beer to drink, like six a day. Yeah. And it's not taking the edge off your production technique or even just like your physical ability to like be no, very precise when, with your mouse clicks. No, I can work through it for sure, but I don't work very efficiently. Yeah. I work like what I could get done in five or six hours drinking that much. I could get done in like an hour if I just wasn't sure. drinking. So, sure. um, yeah, so I, was, I, I just wasn't getting a lot done. And I, I basically just came to the realization if I don't like somehow figure something out, then it's just going to be like a shitty career. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, what I'll do is I'll do the three months at the start of the year. Then I'll do like dry July and then sober October mm-hmm. and just give myself like these break periods. This year I kind of fucked it up. I did um I did all of January dry and then I broke my toe. And usually when I'm like not drinking, I like to also be exercising. And sure. because I broke my toe, I was like, oh, what's the point? And then just like started drinking when I was in Spain teaching. Right. Um, but then... I did do Sober September, which I don't usually do. And now yeah. I'm doing Sober October. So I'm sort of like making up the time. Yeah. I probably won't drink much for the rest of the year. Maybe I will in Australia. I don't know. Do you think that would help with your general mental attitude to you as well as, you know, as it gets cold and as it gets a little, you know, there's less. I guess you live in, in Colorado, so you get a lot of sun anyway. Yeah, Colorado's great. So you're not going to get you know, naturally depressed from the winter and you have to combat that by being sober, you'd be fine if you were drinking through the winter. Yeah. Totally. Which is what a lot of people do, like hunker down 
yeah. drink a lot. Well, just in Colorado, I feel like a lot of people go and get into that whole ski lifestyle. Sure, yeah. They just start fucking pounding beers at 10 a.m. and skiing all day. Yeah, but that's being so active that it's like yeah. almost like leapfrogging the drinking. If exactly, you're that yeah. active and, and like you have to be up at fucking three in the morning to get out to the mountains anyway. Right. <laughs> so like you're already on some sort of schedule that's like very active. Like yeah, the, yeah. the drinking is sort of the, the least of your worries at that point. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of why I stopped drinking. So but much. how do you deal with the boredom of like waiting to go on? Cause you I've, go on I late just, at night. Yeah. I just find other shit to do. Like, I mean, I'll either get into conversations with people or sure. I'll like play chess on my phone or I'll, I don't know, just like, sit around like texting people or looking at Twitter or something. I don't know. I'll just find something else to do. I'll like get on my laptop and make patches for serum or something. <laughs> That's funny. Well, when did you get into chess? It was pretty recently, right? Uh, no, at this point it was about a year and a bit ago, okay. maybe a year and a half, but I, I like played as a kid. Yeah. But sure. then I never really got like massively, massively into it until like a year and a half ago. And I was like, I'm actually going to like start trying to take it seriously. And I would like to find a grandmaster that I could like learn from or whatever, but there's just none in Colorado. There's like, I think two in St. Louis and maybe like two in Atlanta or something. It's such a cerebral distraction. Like, could you imagine if someone was playing those little bejeweled or puzzle games and was like, yeah, you know, I'm a grandmaster at this. I'm really good. But no, <laughs> you're just like some dick that's just playing this game yeah, in line yeah. at the, the supermarket, like just wasting yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't feel like chess gets in the way of anything else for you. It's not like for me, an addiction. Like you'd rather no. open up your chess game than you know, go sit in Ableton. No, I'd prefer to be in Ableton. But the problem with Ableton is like, well, the problem with producing music is it's like you need a physical space to do it because sound is a physical thing. Yeah. It's not like art, you know. I mean, art obviously is a physical thing too, but like you can draw like on a piece of paper and that piece of paper, whether or not you're drawing in this room or in your room at home or in the pub down the road or in a restaurant or at a library or on a plane, it doesn't matter. It's still a piece of paper. That well, it depends on your medium. Like a sculptor couldn't do that or somebody who's working totally. with like large-scale acrylics or oils oh, yeah. or something. Yeah, right. So I would... um liken the logistical issue of writing music more to maybe a sculptor because you need a physical space and you need like particular things to do it i mean yeah you can write music in headphones but it's just not the same as like writing on speakers or whatever yeah but yeah if i could be in a green room writing music that'd be like the move to combat boredom for sure right but it's just difficult just because of like you know you need a quiet area where you can produce sound right and green room is notoriously overrun with bass, bass, <laughs> and vibrations uh, and cokeheads and cokeheads and random people scurrying around getting this and that. Dude, I've not done coke in years, and I fucking cannot stand people on cocaine. It's a lot. It's a lot. Especially multiple people in the green room on coke. It's like <laughs> it's so intense. I'm just like, all right, intensely I get. banal conversations. <laughs> yeah, I'm like. Dude, you've told me the same story like four or five times at this point. Can you please, like, I just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I I just, like, can't fucking stand people who just constantly repeat stories to you. Sure. Or, like, they're way too verbose with the story, like, getting into every little, like, nook and cranny detail about, like, some dumb thing you don't even care about in the I first place. I think I have the tendency to do that. Where, like, the punchline is they just, like, did this thing and it was cool or something. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get better about tightening up my stories. We were talking about how comedians <laughs> are able to really carry you along every step of the way and deliver the like nut of the well, of the fact. The reason why though is because they really engineer those stories. You know, like if you go and see a comedian, especially if they're like at the theater level, sure, 
um, because the way that comedians work, from what my understanding of listening to enough of them on podcasts, is they will do like the um, uh, they'll do like clubs, you know, like small clubs, like in Denver, it's Comedy Works, right? Um, they'll do the whole club circuit, test all their stories yep. over the period of that, figure out what's hitting and what's not, and then engineer them more, like you know, pull bits out, add other bits in, like fuck with them a bunch. Right, right. Or for a talk show, if somebody's going to be on Conan or somebody's going to be on Corden or something, they will run their set in clubs around and, and just yeah. run it, run it, run it until it's tight, like well oiled. Well, like they'll, they'll do that. They'll do all the clubs and then they'll do all the theaters. And then once they're like, okay, it, this is like a theater level set, then they'll record a special. Right. And then they'll like burn build, that material, burn that material, build a new set, and then do all the clubs again. Right. That's what I understand the comedian circuit is like. But that's for a a story that's built into a bit, even if you're talking off the cuff about something that's not material, they still know how to deliver that story in that in that way that gives yeah. enough detail, gives enough setup well, without losing people along the way. Yeah, they're professional talkers, so it's like sure. I think they're just good at that stuff. But I still think you could probably find yourself a pretty annoying comedian on Coke. Oh, yeah, I've met plenty of those too. <laughs> uh, I also meet like people who completely shut down. Like, it's just an inner monologue, like... If they're on coke? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. There's some people who get quiet on it, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, that is the problem with green rooms. Um, the boredom and then the ex excessive exuberance by people who find themselves in the green room, and this is, like, their one night to party, and they're hanging out with their friends who's in their town, and they don't realize that the artist just got off a three-day run or about to do another four-day run, came straight from the airport, going straight at the hotel, going straight to another flight, whatever... And don't realize, like, this is your workspace. <laughs> this is your, like, right, yeah. this is supposed to be your quiet zone. The, yeah. the perception of green rooms, which has been completely blown out of proportion by uh, behind the music specials on the <laughs> 80s, like, yeah. has has completely destroyed what is supposed to be a, like, a sacred space for for artists. Yeah, that, that has been one of the good things about touring with Anderson is they're pretty particular about, like, keeping the green room clear of, like, everyone pretty That's much. Great. Yeah, it's literally just like usually me, Anderson, Kyle, Supertask, and Austin, the, the, right. the TM. Who's amazing. He's Austin great, yeah. He's so, so good at what he does. Yeah, he is. I couldn't even convince him to go uh, bowling with me uh, before the closey Desert Dwellers after party at Spongle, even though we had enough time and he was all set up. He's very, he's very driven. But I would have swamped him in 10 frames in about 23 minutes. What's your bowling average? I am lucky if I break 100, but I'm super streaky. Like, I'll get three or four strikes in a row and then just start throwing gutters just because, like, my technique has to be perfectly down. And, like, once I'm on, I'm on. When I'm off, I'm off. Same did, with Did same you know and stuff. that I was bowling competitively on, like, a state and almost national level in Australia when get I was, like, 10? Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, my average when I was, like, 12 was about, like, 180. Holy shit. Like between like 160 and 180, it would fluctuate. Oh my God. That's incredible. Yeah. I went bowling with Jan the other day in Santa Cruz. Yeah. And um, I think one game I got like 110 and the other game I got like 150, but I hadn't bowled in like years. We should definitely go bowling. Yeah. I would love to. Yeah. Let's do it. It's so much fun and <laughs> it it's is, so yeah. like meditative. I should, I should have spent my fucking therapy money in that hour on bowling oh. because- <laughs> I mean, I can't You're bowl. Like, I can't bowl and not drink. But like, it's yeah. so meditative. You're doing you, this. You like it's a repetitive motion. I, I, I mean, I guess 
other people have to drink to find bowling interesting. I don't think I've done it sober in really? 20 I've, years. I love bowling sober. I, I imagine I'd be great at it, probably better at it. Yeah, totally. Do you still have your own bowling shoes? No, I used to have my own shoes and I used to have a ball with a skull in it. Oh, that's so fucking sick. <laughs> that's so fucking sick. What is your uh, what is your size ball? Or maybe it's I'm different from Australia. Sure. I mean, you, well, usually what, when you get a custom ball made, they just go and like measure your hand basically and then they like drill the holes but for But don't you, you determine the weight of it? Oh, yeah. But the weight was 15 pounds. 15? I think yeah. I'm a 13. Okay. Which is probably unlucky. But that, was fi- that was when I was 12. Oh, sure. So, so like it'd probably still still be probably what's the advantage of a heavier ball just the more strike on the pin to make the the chaos more i actually don't think um i don't know if a heavier ball is like better because i mean there's female bowlers who use like eight pound balls and ball 300s and shit sure which is like all strikes so it's like maybe it's the like the movement arm the lever motion it's something you have to create the right uh centrifugal force would that be using your, your uh, centrifugal is spinning force i think so centripetal would be using your mm. shoulder as a focal point and your arm as the lever pivotal force isn't pivotal it? force like okay your shoulder would be the pivot point. so there would have to be some sort of relationship between the weight of the ball and the length and strength of your arm i, I in really order just, to get the perfect i just think it's what you're comfortable with like well sure i mean you uh, people aren't out there doing math they're like yeah. you're, you're better off bowling with a ball i think that is a comfortable weight for you than bowling with something that's heavier because you think it's going to hit the pins harder or something or lighter because you think you can throw it faster right exactly yeah you might yeah you're better off going with something that you just feel like is part of your hand and you're comfortable with what's your style do you put english on it or i don't spin or anything no okay. i'm pretty like straight. straight down the middle yeah well i i think i usually stand like slightly to the right and then i just sort of go in on an angle and try and hit between the mid the top two pins basically. i'm left-handed so i think i start let me try and figure this out i think i start ananda's standing up right now showing me his bowling techniques <laughs> <laughs> i guess i start yeah a little off center i think i do yeah kind of come and in then an you angle. kind of come in this way yeah which yeah. i think is why when i'm off i'm guttering on the opposite side of my arm yeah i'm over sense. i'm yeah that, a lot of people do that they like they well so you really want to come through and like follow your arm through but if you let go too late then that's when it would like you know, right so you just gotta let go at the right time what does your back leg do when you're done are you kicking my, it back? my right leg goes behind me this way yeah and my front leg this one is the one i put my weight on yeah i, want, I, I kick weird at the end yeah <laughs> like a little <right>? flourish <laughs> And and what is the purpose of that? Just to maintain the just to get the your balance? leg out of the way to give your arm some space. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, never taken a lesson leg. or anything. Were, were you like in lessons when you were bowling at that that yeah, level? Yeah. So the place that I lived in in Australia was um, literally right behind a bowling alley. Huh. And my parents were just like, "Yeah, you can go bowl," and they like paid for me to be in like a league and shit. Wow. And then I did that for like maybe two years, and like in the league, I think you would, you know. Um, you like verse other people and shit. Yeah. And they were all like teams of two or four. So I was in two leagues, I think. And then within that, there would be like yeah, adults there helping you like work on your technique and stuff. And you were dominating? Um, I wouldn't say dominating. I mean like... At or that, was the level of your team just so good that you guys ended up being state ranked or like at least state so, competitive? Yeah, we, we weren't state ranked. We were definitely like, I mean, I think... We, we were definitely competing on a state level, but we weren't like winning and shit. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but we were definitely doing okay. At, definitely at the bowling alley behind my house, we were like winning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Would you hustle adults? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, I probably could have though. Like I was better than my mom and dad at the time and they were also in a league. Okay. 
Um, I didn't know yeah. bowling was popular in Australia. It is. There's like a lady there who at the time, I don't know if she's still popular, but um, a lady there called Cara Honeychurch uh-huh. was like insane. That is such an insanely Australian name. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then there's this other guy, I can't remember what his name is, but like one of the other best bowlers in the world, I think he might even still be as Australian too. That is fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating. Were you super tall at this point? Uh, I was probably like only six foot or something when I was 12, maybe a little shorter. Does having a lower center of gravity give you an advantage in bowling? I don't think so. I think like either is, I really don't think like short or tall makes bowling like make you, makes you a better bowler. And you definitely don't have to be ripped and you definitely don't have to be in shape. No, there's like fat, stocky, short, amazing bowlers. It really is about a repetitive motion, just like curling. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is like down to the technique and the technique isn't about endurance or stamina or training it really is like muscle memory and like having that precision it's all technique yeah you definitely don't have to be super fit like same same with like billiards and like darts and shit sure yeah like kind of come under that like lazy guys sport (laughs) now golf has become like super athletic like it used to be a bunch of John Daly's like chomping on cigars with yeah. big beer bellies. Totally. But now everyone's super trim, like working out big arms because there is an athletic part to it. Like at the end, it's finesse. At the end, it's like bowling when you're like putting and shit. But in the beginning, like if you're able to drive the ball a billion yards, like yeah, then you have an wanna, advantage. So you probably want to be like strong, right? Like pretty yeah, able <laughs> I think to so. hit the ball like fairly hard. Right. But like bowling is is you're not physically knocking the pins down. You are using some sort of like some application of physics. You are, I I think it's just, you have to be able to do the same motion over and over again. Cause if you can do it once, you can do it. What is it? What is a full, uh, if you get 13 strikes in a row would be 300. I I think. Yeah. Cause yeah. So you'd have to have the perfect um, motion down 13 times in a row. 12. Because you would like, there's nine frames and then the last frame, the 10th frame is three strikes. Right. So So you have to be able to do one thing perfectly 12 times in order to be at the top of your. That's to play a perfect game. Yeah. But professionals don't have a 300 average. I know. And that's crazy. Like what a, what a small, do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's such a small window of perfection. Like yeah. it seems like such a small step to be able to, to like do one thing, Just 12 times which, really which a, like a six year old child, their first time bowling could accidentally like throw a strike. So like, it's something that people can do on accident yeah. or somewhat purposefully, hmm. but the best of the best are able to do it 12 times in a row. And that is the absolute, like. That's perfection. And and yeah. how often do professional bowlers bowl 300s? Uh, I would say like maybe one in 30 games or something. Wow. Dude, um, have you ever seen someone bowl a 300? No, have you? Yeah. Holy my, shit. My friend at the time who was also 12 bowled a 300. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that must have, was the entire like place like watching him? Yeah, or? everyone was like pretty sick. His mom was also a professional bowler. Wow. And then he, I think, went on to be maybe professional. I'm not actually sure what he ended up doing. I haven't talked to him in years that is so wild like did he want the attention as he was like i don't think so no because like we were talking about uh doc ellis and his no hitter uh Mm -hmm. earlier like baseball is so full of superstition if someone's on their way to a no hitter like it's kind of obvious by the fifth or sixth inning like oh my god he's actually got a chance to do this (laughs) and so i like you you never want to mention it you never want to mention it 
but like <laughs> just in case you like throw them off mentally or something yeah it's it's very superstitious but like also yeah. you have to get away you got to get out of your own head because pitching is very much like bowling it's all very mental yeah but like i don't know what it's like in bowling if somebody's about to achieve a 300 i think it's more just the bowler themselves not getting in their own head about it because yeah. it's like if you're at fucking 11 strikes and then it's like, oh, fuck, I gotta get one more strike <laughs> or I'm not gonna get 300, like that's gotta be the hardest strike to get, right? Yeah. I mean, or is the first strike the hardest strike to get? Like, maybe the people... first one's definitely not the hardest to get. Cause or like, maybe like the fourth or fifth. The like, the first one is like a no pressure strike. Okay. But you also do wanna open a game with a strike. Like, that's, sure. Yeah. You know. But like the fourth or the fifth has gotta be the hardest because you're like, I'm mm. kind of doing this, but after like the seventh or the eighth, like I am going to do this. I can accomplish this. Uh, I don't think I would do that. I think after the seventh or the eighth, I'd be like, the chance that I'll fuck it up just gets <laughs> bigger and bigger. I wonder, oh man, the, uh, the, it's kind of why I like DJing though. It's because like, no matter like what's going on at the time, you're like, this is all malleable. Like I can constantly fix this. Sure. I kind of like that. You don't feel like, well, yeah, I guess that yeah, that totally makes sense. Like with DJing, you can be like train wrecking and like kind of turn it into a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's easier to train wreck now because like people expect a certain level of experimentalism? Mm, no. Especially in this scene? No, I think I've become way less susceptible to train wrecking just because I've had way more experience now. Sure. But also back in the day, I was playing way harder to mix music yeah. and I was a less good DJ. Yeah. Now I'm a better DJ and I'm playing stuff that's easier to mix. You used to really be down on your own DJ skills and even yeah. as recently as like two or three years ago. Yeah, I think I like picked it up pretty hard in the last few years. Yeah. A lot of that actually was because um, a lot of it came from like chatting, just chatting with friends. Yeah. Because I was like, I realized this is a problem yeah. that I have and I realized it's like an area of my career that I want to like lift up. Sure. So I was chatting with like So Down a bunch about DJing, even though he's like... Uh, not really a DJ. He does everything out of Ableton. And um, he plays sax too, right? Yeah. I mean, he is a DJ, but like, um, you know, he's But not, there's a lot more things going on. Yeah. Yeah, he does other shit too. Um, I talked to Skylar, Jade Cicada, a shitload about DJing. Mm -hmm. I talked to Squanto a ton. Yeah. Um, just like a bunch of friends who are like, especially someone like Squanto who does like Octo Chops and shit. Right. He's like a great dude to talk to about sets, you know? Um, and just people who were like really crushing it on the set side of things. I just started asking a lot of questions. And then I think from that, it like gave me a, in, instilled more confidence in like me to be able to put together sets well. And then I just started like messing around with it more on my own accord. And then I think now I've sort of like got it in a spot where I feel really comfortable with it. For, for Squanto, because the chops have become such a part of like the allure is that like just like a shit ton of guitar solos during a set? Like, does that break up the flow of the dance? Like, that's not exactly my scene. So I don't know. Like, if people are like, you know, if people consider it like a dance music scene and like people are getting to the set or like, it's not the entire set long, obviously, but like, are those like guitar solos where they come at natural peaks or is it like something that's like, watching Ingway Malmsteen or something where it's just like technical stuff the entire time and not like peaks and valleys with these great solos that come and go with it. Like you mean is the octo, like is the part where he's chopping a bunch of yeah. stuff like considered a guitar solo? Right, right, right. Maybe, yeah. I think, or is um, that what's happening the entire fucking time? I think he's doing it almost the entire time. Jesus, okay. Yeah. But the thing is, is the way he does it, he's not really like specifically triggering a lot of stuff. So he like, I think mostly has all the tracks running in Ableton. Right. Running onto multiple 
channels on the mixer. Right. And he's really just turning faders up and down. Right. But the the hard part of that and the impressive part of that is the amount of work that has to go in for him to like make that set. Right. Like, to find eight songs that, that work have, together for sixty minutes. But in that certain style of music, aren't the aren't the drops pretty like mapped out over eight bars, sixteen bars? Whatever? Yeah, I would say that like that's probably the best style of music that would lend itself to that kind of thing. Right. Um, you couldn't do that in glitch. But hop. if you say that to a rhythm person, they do not agree. They they think that it's like some crazy godlike skill to be able to find two rhythm <laughs> tracks that work together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, he's done a good job of like marketing it to people as like, this is something crazy and new. And people are like, this was something that was very surprising to me that like, there's a whole, um, there's a whole subculture of people who like identify when somebody steals your double or steals like your, um, like matching these two drops in a song. Like that's, that's, that's like. Uh, sacrilege in in that realm can, to like steal someone's that. mixing like mixing two songs into each other. Honestly, yeah, stealing a double is probably not cool. Yeah, I don't think I would do that. Like if you know, if um, I actually quite often I'll like tell Dirt Monkey my doubles because a lot of them involve his songs, and I'm like, right. hey, here's a double. Feel free to use it if you want. Sure. But like, I think if I did a double with one of his songs and then he chose to take it like without me saying he could or something i still probably wouldn't give a shit right but i would never do that to like say if he found a double between one of my songs and something else i probably wouldn't then take that to my set or something right because yeah part of it is like finding a fresh double or a fresh triple or now people are like quite often doing quads now as well (laughs) (laughs) octo chop yeah (laughs) that shit is wild yeah, so really what a double is, we talked about this in the Dirt Monkey podcast, it's where you just find like two or three tracks that work together and then on the mixer you like EQ all the lows and highs pretty much out of two of them mm-hmm. and then kind of have the meat going from one of them mm-hmm. and then the ones that you would have like just the mids or the highs coming out of would be some like sort of nostalgic track like Sweet Shop by Dr. P or some shit Yeah, and the one that you would have like all the full frequencies going for would be like a modern track, like, you know, some recent Ulicile banger or something. Yeah. And then you would sort of just run them all over the top of each other. So it still sounds like Sweet Shop by Dr. P. Right. But it's just way more hard hitting and heavy. And then, so it's kind of like on the fly sort of mashups, remix yeah. type deals. And it is pretty cool. And when it's you do it, cool, yeah. when you do it live, it sounds like really intense. Yeah. My issue with them is it's really difficult to get out of them. So like once you start doing them, it's hard to like not keep doing them. Right. Because you'd have to just do a hard cut or like just throw it like, yeah. yeah. It's really hard to go back to just playing one track on its own once you've been layering two for like 10 minutes straight. And Squanto's just doing that the entire time. I think it's the just, entire time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I saw one of his sessions, one of his Ableton sessions for how he builds it. And it's fucking intense, man. There's like hundred channels of just tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Because he was building a set when I was there that week for some shit he was doing in Hawaii or something. Yeah, yeah. And and he's just not touring anymore, right? Or like so he's, dropping the numbers way down. Yeah, I think he just wants to do a lot less because he grinded real hard. Yeah. Even this year, he's done more shows than I have. Like, and even this, and this is a year where he's decided he didn't want to do shows. This is a shows. low, low. Dose yeah, this year. is a yeah. low year for him, and it's he's still done like 60 shows or something yeah because he was on tour with excision at the start of the year got it so he did i think like 50 dates with him yeah and then uh i want to say he did like a bunch of festivals too i think he did e forest okay and then i think he did 
probably a bunch of other shit that I'm not thinking of. And then he did that Summit Music Hall play in Denver that I did with him. Right. Um, and then I think he he's just doing like small sort of things. I, he's definitely trying to taper off at this point, I think. Right. And he wants to get more into like teaching and other That's great. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Yeah, when I went to Salt Lake last week, actually, I went and did a talk at like this school that I think he wants to teach at. Okay. It's called like, uh, the acronym is SLDP. Right. But I don't know what that means. I think it's Salt Lake Digital Production or something. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a lane and you've obviously paved that lane before your touring lane was mm -hmm. teaching and, and, you know, dispensing your knowledge, which I guess brings us full circle. Like you really did yeah. like come up as a teacher as your music was catching on do you think that gives you more perspective in terms of like the longevity part of your career because you you weren't just going from your basement to the shows like yeah in some way yeah but also i think like um that bred a problem for me in that like a, a lot of my fan base was and still is producers mm -hmm. and producers generally don't like to go to shows as much as just like you know people who are working a nine to five job five days a week and then right. they need a release you know yeah so they're like i'm gonna go fucking party my ass off now producers are kind of in their room just grinding away at shit and they just want to do creative stuff and in general i don't think necessarily want to go out to shows as much as these these other types of people who really if you're trying to build a show career you want those types of people to be your fans right the, the people who are like gonna go to every fucking show right which i think <clears> was giving you you know some problems a couple of years ago you're wondering like Am I playing to the right crowds? Am I playing the right stuff for people? But I think you yourself have figured out a way to release music that is like IDM, very like cerebral, like driven by your desires to evolve your own music sound. And then you also have like, you know, your popcorn, like you able, you're able to produce bangers and like, find the thing that really hits the crowd at the right time and the right moment for where that music is. And I think finding that balance for you is, has changed your own outlook on your own shows and touring and all that. Oh yeah, totally. And I also think a part of it is just like me realizing that I can compartmentalize stuff a little differently and a, and a bit more like clear for people to understand, which is something that I think was imperative to tip his success a few years ago too where he like very clearly branded two different sets as like yeah. the down tempo sets and the up tempo sets. Um, and then I think like I'm doing a sort of similar thing where I'm sort of doing these like Ableton talks and I'm doing like YouTube tutorials and then I'm doing Twitch streams and then a podcast and then also making bangers for sets. Right. And like I'm sort of just like compartmentalizing a bunch of things and trying to make it easy for people to understand that I do a bunch of different shit rather than being like, I'm an IDM teacher, dubstep, right. whatever the fuck. And like, if you come to see my show, you'll have no idea what you're going to get sort of thing. And I think that's what was like fucking me up a while ago is that I didn't really understand my project myself. Yeah. So it was really hard for other people to understand it. Sure. All I understood, I think, about my project was that I'm into Ableton. Right. And I like to do Ableton things regardless of what that means. I think what's really helped is also the level of understanding amongst fans has risen dramatically. <laughs> like you've got people who would ordinarily just be fans and want to go to a show like messaging you before the show like what kind of sound system is there going to be at the club yeah, right. like begging for their favorite hennessy function one whatever pk oh, dude speaking of which bringing the function ones for the show with chris was totally the move man absolutely it sounded so sick in there absolutely and canyon does an incredible job yeah he knows the room so well canyon walker with subverted entertainment shouts yeah. to him 
Um, he knows that room really well. He is constantly getting more fucking function one. He cannot yeah. stop. He's got an addiction. <laughs> and so he's always getting the the latest uh, versions of, of um, their latest rigs and tuning the same rooms that he does over and over again to the point where he can really make a room sound incredible. Um, and yeah, the fan base, the, the knowledge base of the fans has increased dramatically over the past couple of years as people get into more and more intricate stuff. And you can see that in the slug wife community where like people like trying to break down what each track is. And they're like, is this a curse of tune? Is this a, is this broken? Oh, this is that new Seppa. I think this is the <laughs> secret tipper that only they get. Right. And what, what's hilarious is they are assholes in that group and are like yeah. oh yeah this is the new secret tipper only we have it <laughs> and you know like people are people are turning electronic music into jam bands which is hilarious like cool, oh man. i got this particular song in this city i gotta go follow um you know my favorite dj to chicago or miami to get hopefully get this song or that song and like right which is great i mean like yeah. you want that level of engagement from fans Absolutely. really because yeah i mean it's it's nice when you get that engagement of level from the artist perspective because it makes you want to go back home and like make more bespoke shit for your sets. You know? Sure. And it's like when you're driven to like make the set better, then the sets get better and then everyone's experience gets better and the whole thing hopefully like snowballs and all that sort of shit. Is there a song that people ask you for more than anything else? Like people obviously beg Joshua for Space Jam and like, you right. know, um, expect it or want it in a particular set. Actually, there is now. It's the Jade Cicada edit. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. You know, the, the meth just the Sunday crunk. Yeah, juice, so, yeah, which is an edit that me and Kill Smith put together for our Kill Bill set like a long time ago. Yeah. And since then, um, I've been hit up by so many fucking people for that. Like um, a bunch of big artists too with like 20, <laughs> 30,000 Instagram followers like DMing me being like, hey, man, mind if I grab a copy of that? <laughs> and I'm like, me and Chris are both like, no. like you can't do it. Yeah. yeah. And same with the, the Sofa Surfing remix as well that we did. I've seen people message you about that. Yeah, that's another one. Um, basically, edits, like edits of big tunes. That would be like your double, essentially. Like, yeah. this is a very personal thing to my sets. You have to see me live to get this particular yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't know if I'm going to get to them even tonight because I've only have 45 minutes. Maybe I should just play all the edits. <laughs> I mean, you're coming out of like Vector and Frequent and Kyoto. They're after or no, they're after I think the it's Digital, digital ethos, ethos directly before me. Is he heavy? It's pretty heavy. Okay. Um, just but like it. earlier that night, people have just seen Detox, Jade Cicada, uh, Tipper. And so, you know, you have an opportunity to like palate cleanse or you kind of have a lot of like room to play with because like obviously everyone who's into them is going to be into your set no matter what you do. So you've got a lot of freedom to like, you know, stuff in what you want to, especially at that time of night. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess to finish off, cause we got to leave soon for this dinner. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about management stuff. Cause I know that people are going to want to, you don't want to talk more about bowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. I, I feel like we went so far afield. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. That's what a podcast is for. Yeah. How long have we been doing this for by the way? Uh, 90, an hour and a half. That's pretty good. Okay. Um, yeah. So, well, who's your roster at the moment? I know uh, you do me and I know you do Zebler and Conti experience. Yeah, I work with uh, Desert Dwellers and Kelly Scintilla. Um, Black Carl is someone that I am like super excited about right now. He's got that project with Aaron Vector, who we'll see yeah, later tonight. Integrate. integrate. Dude, that shit is sick. It's really, really cool. And, and they're starting to get some cool opportunities about that. And, you know, fans are just, 
freaking out about them and it's they're so pure they're like two yeah. goofy best friends Christian from birmingham people. just like <laughs> so fucking happy and like stoked and like carl still texts me and freaks out when like big people dm him for his songs right. or like he hears someone plays so like curse up drops a different like uh integrate track out at a big place he's still excited and that like gets me excited because you know it's easy to get jaded in this industry and totally. and and really you know be able to think of this as a job and not get excited yeah. about the big things that happen. If you, if you put your, like, if you're able to like rewind the disc of your mind and get back to when you're 14 and think about the things that you're complaining about now, or like, oh, yeah. I have to fly everywhere. <laughs> and like, if you're able to just trick yourself into putting your 14 year old perspective on things a little bit and be like, Holy shit, I'm a musician. I am touring all over the place. I'm doing this. It just gives you this burst of like excitement and energy. And, and that's what I get from Carl. Yeah, I feel like I got jaded and then have come back to not being jaded, which is good. It's definitely better to not be jaded. Yeah. You get a lot further if you're not. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, okay, so you have that roster. And then, like, what would you Ooh, say? Let, let me mention one more guy. Um, someone I'm really, really, really excited about is Mercury, mm -hmm. uh, who's out of the Asheville area. I think he's back in Charlotte now. Um, but he is making such incredible slow music like slow dubstep like very very calculated stuff and and he's kind of on the spiritual tip and listens to a lot of indian music and like takes a lot of eastern influence and time signatures and and like resonant frequencies and all that and mixes it into his stuff but like i'm able to see him move rooms with incredibly slow like um meticulous music and like very spatial spiritual music i feel like that shit's happening lately like uh it's charles cool. charles the first does charles that. is doing that and too cozy too really like i mean it's kind of slow soft music um but it has like some form of energy to it that really moves people there'll be a little bit of bass to like m like feel it in your chest but they're able to move audiences and rock audiences with like very beautiful flowing music and i think that's very important right now because mm. You know, we we get into that bro step arms race and the granular sound design type stuff and try and get like all crazy and all, you know, as as over the top and, and brash and bold as possible. And I think every so often things reset and you get the closies and the Charles the First. And like I, very beautiful. It's kind of like um, I feel like Flume was that to the Skrillex era. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so you have yeah. that you have that roster. Um, yeah. What is generally your job for like those artists, and is that job different for each artist? It is, and you know it varies from uh, from artist to artist, and also what hat I'm technically wearing at the time. And right, because you know some, a lot of it for some artists, you wear the agent hat as well as the manager hat. Exactly, right? exactly, and in, and that can get complicated and a little tricky, and it just ends up in you doing a lot of stuff. But you know, especially at this size, I like working with developmental artists. When you start working with bigger artists, you're part of a team and you do a very specific role. But when you get to do everything for an artist, especially a young one, you get to introduce them into the the seedy underbelly of the music business stuff and for some people they want to like know about it and are interested in it and a lot of people are just like i don't give a shit i want to sit at my computer and make music and not deal with any of this stuff so you, you can be educator or you can just be an advocate and take things off their plate and be like i'm going to take care of this for you um but you know an, an agent very generally goes out and finds you shows to plays uh reaches out to promoters reaches out to venues um, sometimes promoters work hand in hand with the venues 
to uh, to have standard weeklies or monthly events, and you just make those connections. And because you have a roster to begin with, hopefully they trust you when you bring a new client on and they're like, you've brought me some good clients to play these shows in the past, so I'm going to trust you with this. Um, if you're if you're new in the game, it really is all about networking and schmoozing and convincing other artists to bring yours on as support to be able to tour with them, get experience in those markets. But, um, you know, eventually your goal is to make turn your artist into a headliner. There's some acts who have been very successful um, just being support like throughout most of their career and are always someone who's going to be a support act. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. But, you know, really at the, at the end of the day, you're an artist and you want to share your vision. And so you want to curate a night and have the people opening up for you, you know, be someone you like or, or be someone that's a good lead up to you or sonically complimentary to you. Right. Yeah. The cool thing about being a headliner, if you can sell the tickets is that like, you get the the privilege of being able to pick who plays before you and really curate the whole night Absolutely. from your end. And then you also get to curate the production and what that looks like exactly. and like how the night would build in terms of and production. And nobody can fuck with you because they want your show and you sell tickets. So right. you can get exactly the kind of lights you want, the exact kind of projection you want. You get to use your VJ and go, is that you, your set time is exactly how long you want it? You know, when you're, when you're first in this business and when we're working with smaller artists, sometimes you get pushed around a little bit. And sometimes... You have to take deals you don't want to take because you don't want to miss out on an opportunity. And sometimes, um, you know, you're like you're, playing you're, in Billings, Montana for 400 bucks on a Tuesday right, night. Or something. Right. And, and you got to you got to hold your client's hands through those parts and say, this is the grinded out phase. This is the hard work you have to do to get into all these markets, to build up your fan base, to build your name, because eventually you will be a headliner and people will become lifelong fans if they saw you in Billings, Montana in 2015 and you rocked the shit out of that show with 10 people in it. You know, those are going to be your super fans. Those are going to be your your acolytes. You know, the, they're the apostles that will, will be telling 10 friends of theirs and those 10 friends tell 10 more. And that's how you build in each market and start to sell more tickets. You come back again and again and you pour your heart out. You don't get shitty over small um, fees or, or poor turnout because... You don't know when your super fan is going to be in the crowd and that super fan is going to turn on their entire community to you. Right. Um, so, you know, that's what you got to tell artists during the lean times. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's tough. And, and a lot of people can't hack it. And even those who do struggle with money and mental health through a lot of it, because it is tough and, and it's, it's a game of attrition. You just got to outlast everyone else and build up your fan base. Yeah, I've always thought about it that way. It's kind of just like a staying game. Yeah. It's like if you can just stick around for long enough, maybe it'll happen. Um, so what what would your advice be if you like, I, I have a lot of people who always message me being like, how do I get started with like playing shows? How do I get on like an agency? How do I get management? When do you, when do I need a management? You're putting team? the cart before the horse. That's what I always think too. It's like, yeah, you, you should already be playing shows and you should already be almost fairly established with shows before you even think about an agent or manager. Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to be cranking out music that people are absolutely losing their shit over. And if you're just putting your music up on SoundCloud because you think it sounds good. If you really, really listen to it a bunch and think, am I at the level of the people that I am trying to emulate or the scene I want to be in? If you really think that your music's at that level, go for it. But if you're really starting out, don't put garbage up on SoundCloud and then try and push to get an agent off of that or get shows off of it. Make sure that you're putting your absolute best shit on, on SoundCloud because... 
there's a billion people doing it. And if somebody hears one track of yours once and it's mediocre, they're going to remember that or they'll forget you completely. But, you know, they might remember you as being mediocre, even if your tracks are getting better. Like, make sure you're absolutely putting your best shit out there and people will find it and they will crawl over broken glass to get you to come play. That's what I always think too. It's kind of like if you're making shit that's good enough, people will fucking go so far out of their way to hear it. It's kind of like when Alon Moore came on the scene not that many years ago. His album or his production in general and his music in general is just so fucking good that everyone was like going out of their way to hear it. Even people like Kill the Noise and shit was like posting about it and stuff like that. Exactly. People will find it if you are really, really good. And so you're not going to be like, oh, I need to find an agent. You're going to be inundated with so many show requests that you're going to reach out to people and agents, you know, have a limited amount of time and they need some sort of momentum. Agents can't just get you shows. You have to have some natural momentum in order to be able to help them do their job. Mm -hmm. And so if you are absolutely inundated with shows, people will notice that. Agents are very good about seeing where the buzz is and and who is kind of exciting all the other producers and artists and stuff. We are on SoundCloud as much as DJs are looking for the next big thing. Well, also, yeah, it's kind of like if you do have that buzz around you, um, it kind of makes the agent's job easier. But also it's like they look at you as like, you know, a potential investment yeah. for their time, right? Because like right. If, if they invest, you know, 10 hours a week into you or something like that, maybe in a few years that would, you know, if you're getting, you know, some solid set fees. Then... I'm in the gambling business. Right. That's I, I gamble with everything, you know? Exactly. And so like a client could take some initial investment on our part and, you know, the, the amount of money we're making on commissions far uh, is, is far exceeded by the amount of admin costs of actually going through and contracting and advancing and doing all that stuff. It's a gamble that, you know, this artist will pop. And if you are a good agent or a good manager, you are creating this loyalty between you and your client. And, you know, the worst thing in the world is building someone up and then they go off to a bigger agency or a bigger management firm. And it happens. It happens to the to the best agents and best managers. It's just the nature of the game. But, like, um, yeah, developing that relationship with an artist really comes from there being something special about you. So... If you are looking for an agent or looking for a manager, there better be something damn special about you. And if there's not yet, you can go harder. You can make better music. You can capture people's imagination and and they will come to you. The agents and the managers will come to you. Yeah, my answer to people who generally ask this question is pretty similar. I'm like, just put more effort in. Like at this point, you should just be like really enjoying the fact that you can be at home working on music constantly. Mm -hmm. You should just like be hammering it. And because, you know, one of the side effects of getting really good at Ableton is spending less time on Ableton. Yep. Um, and, and I think there was a tweet about this. Yeah. At one I point, somebody tweet, yeah. was like, one of the side effects or one of the hidden features in Ableton uh, when you get really good at it is waking up in airports hungover all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great tweet. And it's absolutely <laughs> true. And yeah, enjoy that time that you're able to be at home, stack those tracks, like get really good at DJing. The first time people see you, they should be blown away and want to tell everyone yeah. they know about you. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where I fucked up too is I started doing shows before I was good at DJing. Um, and I really shouldn't have. I really should have like gotten better at DJing before I started playing out as much as I did. Because yeah. I did a fucking lot of shows in 2012, 2013, even 2014. Like I really don't think I got really good at DJing until like maybe – really late 2017 and i was doing tons of shows up until then i mean we did that giant show with uh hutch Hutch. and stuff in 2016 um 
you weren't DJing at that point. You were basically like, it was in a like band. a live set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was kind of different. That was nuts. Oh, yeah. Great and very cool. And, you know, someday maybe you'll do it in a different way. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just a matter of like getting paid enough and like having right. enough want or need to do that. But I'm really happy at this time treating DJing kind of like stand up comedy. Absolutely. It's literally just like I'll like work on bits. Yes. And then I'll just throw all these bits into my set. And then like, you know, every day I almost have a new set now, which is like I played in Minneapolis last night. And tonight the set's going to be different, you know, with right. the live set, that's not possible. And you are actually making jokes with your music at the same time, too. Like you have a mm. very irreverent sense of humor. And so like you will do things that are actually funny. Like you want right. to elicit a response from the crowd, not just dancing or banging their heads, but like you will sometimes do things that are very funny. And like, like playing that blocked edit. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Shouts to Supercilious on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. He's at the Spectacle tonight. Oh, yeah. He's doing a live show, right? Yeah. His life band. Life Bunch band. Of fucking tool nerds. <laughs> yeah. Where, where's that at? Rhode Island. Oh, the, with the Reliquarium crew, I want to say. Crazy. In Providence? Uh, I think so. Rhode Island is probably just one city large, right? Like, I don't yeah, know anything much. about my. New England ge uh, geography, but I think Rhode Island yeah. is such a small state that it's basically Providence. And if you're not in Providence, you're in Connecticut. Right. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Of course. Um, that's like in... I don't think we talked about anything of use more than 10% of the time, but hopefully in that 10%, there was something It'll be fine. useful. Yeah, I'm sure people... But we we only it. get to talk about business, so this was fun to be able to talk about talk like... About bowling and bowling. shit. <laughs> <laughs> and climate change. Yeah, fuck yeah. All right. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.